Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Chuck Buck is not here this morning. I'm J. Paul Spencer, Senior Compliance Consultant for Doctors Management, and I'll be sitting in for Chuck. Reaction to the reporting last Monday on forensic audits continues to reverberate. As a result, we continue our reporting on forensic audits. Joining us later in the broadcast will be Michael Lewis, a subject matter expert on forensic audits. Also on today's Monitor Monday, you'll hear from senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. He too reports on forensic audits. Rack Monitor investigative reporter and New York attorney Ed Roche returns to the broadcast with another report on a healthcare issue that is flying below the radar. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. We have much news to report, but we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Last week was the week of the skilled nursing facility. While I'd like to claim that I had insider information, it was purely coincidence that my Rack Monitor article about the dreaded three-day stay requirements would be published the day after the Office of Inspector General released a report on payments for Part A SNF stays that were not preceded by a three-day inpatient admission. The OIG report looked at SNF admissions in 2013 to 2015 and found over 22,000 Part A claims that did not have a preceding three-day inpatient stay. They then audited 100 of those and found 35 actually had a three-day stay, leaving 65 that were inappropriate. They extrapolated that to $84 million in improper payments. Now that $84 million is actually only less than one-tenth of 1% of total SNF spending. But the main reason I think the OIG was upset about this is that this was the 28th audit where they found that CMS and their contractors were improperly paying Part A SNF claims, so the OIG was not happy that these errors kept happening. But what should really scare every one of us is that the OIG proposed a solution to this problem. You ready? They want CMS to develop a form and require that every patient going to a SNF get written notification that indicates the number of inpatient days they've accrued to enable them to have a Part A SNF stay and give that, a copy of that form to the SNF. Is there anyone excited about another form? I guess, fortunately, CMS disagreed with this recommendation and they agreed, though, to provide more education. So what's the problem here? Of course, it's those darn days spent as outpatient that accidentally get counted as an inpatient day. Well, actually, the problem is that three-day inpatient requirement itself. As I described in my article, that requirement dates back to the start of the Medicare program over 50 years ago. This makes sense in the 1960s where we treated heart attacks with milk and bland diets, but not in 2019 where the mean length of stay for DRG 066, stroke or intracranial bleed, 
2.2 days. Why don't they fix this? Well, they tried fixing it in 1988, and SNF expenditures shot up, so they quickly reinstated the three-day stay requirement. And despite sustained efforts by groups such as the ACMA and the Center for Medicare Advocacy, this has not been addressed. It may also be that CMS is hoping the problem will just go away as more beneficiaries move to Medicare Advantage where the plan is free to permit SNF at any point. But in the meantime, what can be done? I suspect many of the mistakes occur because of the confusion about the true date of the inpatient admission. CMS uses the admission date on the claim to find out where um, to find out how many days have been spent as inpatient. So find out where your billing staff gets that date from the actual order for admission, from the registration system, from nursing notes. If it's not from the order, fix that. And be sure the SNF gets the right day count when you refer the patient. My article has more details. Thanks, and back to you, Jay Paul. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, we have two reports on forensic audits. Later in the broadcast, subject matter expert Michael Lewis will join the broadcast. But here now with more on these problem-prone audits is senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. Thank you, Jay Paul. There's a big difference between auditing and forensic auditing when it comes to coding and billing practices in healthcare organizations. You know, standard audits conducted to mostly validate the appropriateness of coding or billing for some specific procedure or service or even a supply. But inherent in its description, forensic auditing is done to assess the likelihood that the organization committed fraud. Now, standard auditing practices are only capable of capturing a very small percent of potential fraud because it is only capable of looking at a small fraction of events. So let's say fraud accounts for 2% of all healthcare transactions. Just think of how many complex reviews you'd have to do to capture anything that amounts to a significant finding. Forensics, on the other hand, relies upon a lot more sophisticated techniques, for example, data mining and analytics, and the use of more advanced statistical techniques like predictive analytics or artificial intelligence or machine learning. And this is evidenced by the development of the CMS's fraud prevention system, that predictive analytics model that they've used to successfully prevent and recover several billion dollars in both potential and real overpayments. Forensics is also, uh, also includes law enforcement techniques, uh, such as preservation of evidence, chain of custody procedures. Think about how likely it is that your employees would know how to properly treat information that may be associated to fraud, and the chances are not very good. Now, one relatively unknown but very powerful tool in forensic auditing is called Benford's Law, or sometimes it's called the First Digit Law. Most people outside of the field of forensic auditing have never heard of this, which makes it quite useful for detecting fraud amongst the general population. The majority of folks have this fallacious belief that numbers, in general, are randomly distributed. And this might include the number of ratio of patients above or below a certain age group or disallowances and claims or copay collection rates. In fact, this belief has caused many a potential fraudster to get caught. In general, Benford's Law assigns the rate at which the numbers 1 through 9 appear as the first digit in any numbering sequence. For example, uh, the number one shows up as the first digit around 30% of the time. 
the number four around 9.7% of the time, while the number nine accounts for about 4.5% of all the first digit positions. And this is the case for any naturally occurring set of numbers. Um, so, for example, if you were to pick up the Wall Street Journal for today and you were to take all of the numbers you find, put it in a column in a spreadsheet, and then clip off the first digit, you would find that it very closely approximates Benford's law, Benford's distribution. It works, for example, with the length of all rivers in the world or um, all the populations of the counties within the United States. Uh, so let's say you're, you're doctoring invoices. You can embezzle some money from your employer. Uh, or you're changing costs to increase your DRG reimbursement. Many people will try to just randomly distribute those changes, deviating from this Benford's law or this Benford's distribution. And that is a key indication that there's been some intervention in the accumulation of those numbers. Years ago, I was hired to solve a long-standing problem of this particular insurance company, a payer, that was shorting providers on their contractual payment amounts for their claims. And the payer said, well, these are due to specific edits or, you know, it's an inherent within the model. Well, if that's the case, since charges and payments tend to follow Benford's, then we would expect to see these disallowances also follow Benford's, but that was not the case. In fact, what we saw was a very random set of values, and in the end, the payer finally admitted that they were randomly cutting payment amounts, and they agreed to settle it for fear of being exposed. The point is, the application of these types of analytics are becoming more and more common in healthcare fraud. So fraudsters, beware. And that's the world according to Frank. Back to you, Jay Paul. Thanks, Frank. That was senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen, and you can read his reporting on forensic audits in Thursday's Rack Monitor. Coming up at 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're here from David Glazer, Ed Roche, an encore appearance by Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and our special guest, Michael Lewis. This is Monday, February 25th. I'm Jay Paul Spencer sitting in for Chuck Buck, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Accomplish big things in little time. AHIMA's on-demand coding webinars offer a timely, flexible solution to keep pace with rapid changes happening in the health information industry. Walk away with new knowledge and know-how. All you need is an hour. AHIMA's 2019 coding webinars cover topics like the value of a complete quality coding audit program, improving revenue integrity, the new frontier for HIM professionals, APR-DRG comprehension, phases, steps, and subclasses, plus other subjects. Visit ahimastore.org to browse all topics. Thanks, Clark. And a program note, you can now master the coding of EM services when you download a remarkable four-part series now available on demand at the ICD-10 University Bookstore. To learn more about mastering EM coding, click on the Handout tab in today's Monitor Monday. And now for the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. What's risky this morning? Good morning, Paul. So first off, for listeners in the St. Louis area, I hope I'll see you at the HCCA regional meeting on Friday, where I'll be discussing lessons from a Stark investigation and offering tips for investigations generally. Come on up and say hi. The risky business today involves medical devices and equipment. Often, when you first get something, there are questions about the proper code to use. I know it's quite common in this situation to think, hey, let's ask the sales rep for the best way to bill for the service. So is that a good idea? 
Now, on the one hand, device companies can do an incredibly good job of helping you understand a complex coding situation. I've helped a number of device companies come up with advice and even been engaged in appeals on behalf of some of their customers. So it would be incredibly hypocritical for me to say that you should never trust advice from a manufacturer. Uh, in fact, when I'm trying to determine the coding for a particular procedure, I regularly search for guidance from manufacturers to see their wisdom on the topic. But it's imperative to realize that this is just guidance and not anything official. Some clients learn this the hard way. A couple of weeks ago, I received a call from a client in the industrial Midwest who'd been told to use a particular code for any procedure involving a certain device. This organization, an ambulatory surgical center, had used the code for years. Recently, they conducted their own research and discovered the advice from the company was wrong. They contacted me to determine whether a refund was necessary. Now, there was potentially a glimmer of hope. As we've discussed, Medicare has the principle that if you are without fault with respect to an overpayment, the overpayment is waived. You'll remember that's Section 1870 of the Social Security Act. Now, CMS takes the position that healthcare organizations are not allowed to use the principle of without fault when determining whether to make a refund because they assert only the government and not an organization can determine whether they're without fault. I completely disregard this assertion because it's inconsistent with the plain language of the Medicare statute. You get to make the determination whether you're without fault when you're deciding whether to refund. CMS is just wrong. If you're without fault, you don't have an overpayment, and the whole 60-day statute doesn't apply. So could my client conclude that they're without fault because they relied on advice from a manufacturer? I'm hesitant to push that argument very aggressively. When you get billing advice from a Medicare contractor, I'd strongly argue that you're without fault relying on it. But it's more challenging to argue that when you can put your fate in the hands of a company that's selling you a product, you can rely on that without question. In fact, whenever anyone is trying to sell you something, it's helpful to take their analysis with a grain of salt. In fact, salt, the salt talks back from the 70s and 80s, might have been the time that President Reagan made famous the Russian proverb, trust, but verify. When it comes to device advice, make your own assessment of the proper coding and billing. So, Mr. Spencer, don't have tears for your fears. Get some device advice from the young at heart. Back to you, Paul. Thanks, David. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Joining us now to report on another important healthcare issue is Rack Monitor investigative reporter and New York attorney Ed Roche. Hi, Paul. We reported earlier on the Right to Try program. This law allows patients with fatal diseases like cancer for which no treatment has worked, to try experimental drugs. There is a Right to Try organization. It is found on the web at righttotry.org. They have a process for getting in a test, and you can find the paperwork there. The patient must be someone who does not qualify for a regular clinical trial. But with Right to Try, they can test drugs that are in phase two or three, 
which is research before official clinical trials start. I was wondering what types of studies are going on. You can find a list at clinicaltrials.gov. Right now, there are around 33,000 studies being done for cancer alone. Our current administration recently approved Right to Try for Medicare patients. Starting with those 33,000 studies, if you narrow down the criteria to cancer trials that are enrolling or recruiting now and are in phase two or three taking people Medicare age, then there are around 2,855 studies. Is there a pattern? Overall, there are 27 or so types of cancers being targeted. There are 145 molecular targets being investigated. But of all those molecular targets, surprisingly, only three account for the vast bulk of our cancer research. These are PD-1, PD-CD-1, and CD-279. PD-1 is the programmed cell death protein, number one. Great name. These three molecular targets are used in immunotherapy. If your body has some type of antigen, like cancer, it will generate a damage-associated molecular pattern, also known as a danger signal. This will cause your immune system to produce CD8 plus T cells, known as killer cells, and they will attack your cancer. Scientists have found that a protein called PDL1 will connect to another molecule in a way that will send out a signal to cut production of your killer cells. The PD1 protein links to the PDL1. By the way, PDCD1 is the gene that encodes the PD1 protein. So now what? Much current research is developing ways that will interfere with the PD1 protein. For example, monoclonal antibodies can be made with receptors that will attach to the protein so it will not be there to stop production of your killer T cells, which now will be free to come in and attack the cancer. It's like a cancer cell has a stealth bomber mode. The PD-1 protein chain gives it a type of invisibility to your T cells, but when you take away the stealth, the T cells can locate the target and come in for the kill. Science seems to be making progress, and the new rules allow people on Medicare to try experimental drugs, and the government will pay the bill. For others, the research will be funded by the drug company or research center. I was wondering why people would try this. Even though their chances of survival are low, perhaps it is because they can be sure that they are contributing to scientific research that eventually will develop a cure. So perhaps that's the good news for today. Oh, um, I forgot. CD279 is just another name for the PDL1 ligand. Back to you, Paul. Thanks, Ed. That was Rack Monitor investigative reporter and New York attorney Ed Roche, Edison Director of Scientific Intelligence at Baraclaw LLC. Coming up next, our lead story with Michael Lewis reporting on forensic audits. We'll be right back. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's important information on a new healthcare publication focused specifically on the racks and other third-party auditors. Introducing the Auditor Monitor. This essential guide is filled with the latest audit news, including all the RAC auditors and what issues they've been approved to audit. Learn about the types of audits you can expect and how to best defend yourself. Learn more about hot topics like telehealth, 340B, and the Pepper Report. Auditor Monitor subscribers will receive one issue per quarter. 
Now there's more. If you subscribe this week, you'll get all four issues for the price of three, a $50 value. Don't hesitate. Subscribe to Auditor Monitor, your complete source of healthcare auditing. Now available on the Rack Monitor Store. Reaction to the reporting last Monday on forensic audits continues to reverberate. During last week's Monitor Monday broadcast, Amanda Gilliland, a Revenue Integrity Nurse Auditor at UW Health in Madison, Wisconsin, reported on what she described as spurious denials as a result of forensic audits. With more to report on forensic audits is Michael Lewis, a subject matter expert on forensic audits. I was listening to the previous speakers. And what they're talking about and what I've seen and hospitals have told me about are two completely different issues. The auditing that they're claiming is forensic auditing is really just old-fashioned hustle. The key to defeating these people are two sections in the provider reimbursement manual. So write these two numbers down. I'll, I'll, I'll stay out of the details later, but you need to know about sections 2202.6 and 2202.8. 2202.6 deals with or defines routine services and 2202.8 defines ancillary services and they conflate the two they'll they'll say you can't charge for this you can't charge for that because the rules say and then we'll go into some of the stuff on on routine services but the denials are from ancillary services for instance one one particular hospital is having a lot of trouble with supplies being denied out of surgery cases and and all of the justification for denying those things was based on a contorted uh, explanation by using the definition of ancillary services. This particular company even went so far as misquoting it. They added a few lines, I mean a few words, to the the, uh, the definition of ancillary services. And, and I talked to a friend of mine here in town. I'm in Houston. That's that's why I talk funny, everybody. Um, uh, there's apparently there's a law, there's a statute about misstating federal regulation. Well, that's what these guys did. They said they they quoted ancillary services. They put an extra couple of words in there that changed it substantially, and then they used the distorted version to um, deny the charges. We've been doing this for. 28 years, a little over. Uh, and we've, over those years, we've developed a lot of documentation from CMS, from the central office in Baltimore and from various regional offices. And CMS has told us in writing that you can charge for however, whatever things you want to in ancillary departments. So in surgery or respiratory therapy or radiology or any of the ancillary departments, you can charge as completely, as specifically as you want. And that can be, there's a spectrum there. It goes from you can have a flat rate for all the services or you can charge individually for every single little thing that you use. And most people, it's somewhere in the middle. Um, but these auditors will tell you that, oh, no, it's supposed to be rolled into this or, no, you can't do it because of that. And, and this procedure is incidental to the main procedure, so it's supposed to be included. And, and this particular outfit used that routine. This, this procedure is is incremental to the main procedure therefore we're denying such and such they weren't denying procedures they were divine they were denying uh supplies and and uh, this particular hospital had about a million dollars worth of supplies had been denied under that ruse 
And and when you get right down to it and really look at the words, procedures aren't supplies. Purposes aren't supplies. So I, I guess what I'm saying is um, these people don't make those kind of mistakes because they're just mistakes. You don't add words to a regulation by accident. You may have a typo. You may leave out a word, but you don't add words by mistake. Uh, so what I would suggest is that you consider the following. Most of your contracts have um, provisions in them for dispute resolution, and most of those are probably going to be arbitration. Well, run a quick report. Identify all the patients by employer. Find out who the biggest employers are for, that are, are, are customers of, of your most egregious payers. And then explain to the payers how they're in violation of the contract. And, and you're supposed to do it their way, but threaten them with balanced billing. And you will see them snap to attention and just go apoplectic. Because if they're breaking the rules, so can you. Paul, back to you. Thanks, Michael. That was Michael Lewis. Mr. Lewis is president of the Financial Review Services of Houston, Texas. There's a lot of important news we're reporting, and with another developing story, once again, here is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. My second segment today involves homework, so pay attention. As I've talked about in past segments, CMS has removed the inpatient order as a condition of payment. In their guidance, they stated that in extremely rare circumstances, an admission can be billed without an order if there's evidence of intent of the physician to admit the patient. A case was presented to a user group, and next week, I'm going to ask you what you would do. So listen carefully. The patient, a 95-year-old traditional Medicare beneficiary who presented at the ED with an exacerbation of heart failure and evidence of acute kidney injury in the late afternoon. He was transferred to the ICU in the early evening. There was no verbal admission order from the attending or a bridge admission order from the ED doctor. An H&P was done at 6.30 by the hospitalist. That physician then sat down to enter admission orders, and after writing three orders, not including the admission order, the patient lost consciousness and had a cardiac arrest. The patient had a no resuscitation order, so he died. He was on telemetry, which showed an ST elevation just prior to his arrest, and the attending documented that he had an acute myocardial infarction. So we have a patient who has a clearly a two midnight expectation with his initial presentation, who was treated but died. He was assigned an inpatient bed. He was registered in the computer as an inpatient, but he died before an admission order was written. So can the hospital bill this as an inpatient admission? I don't think anyone argues that was the physician's intent. Now, before you make up your mind, let me add that this patient was discharged less than a week ago from the same hospital with a primary diagnosis of exacerbation of heart failure. And the primary diagnosis for this day will probably be exacerbation for heart, of heart failure or myocardial infarction. Now, why is this important? Well, if the patient's stay is billed as an inpatient, it will be a heart failure readmission. Now, although the complex formula CMS uses to calculate readmissions, this one's probably expected, it's still another readmission. Second, every inpatient mortality is tracked and reported, 
and the 30-day mortality rate after MI or heart failure is used in the CMS value-based purchasing program. So this admission would result in another potential penalty. Now CMS tells us we can bill an inpatient admission without the order where intent is established, not that we must bill these patients as inpatient. After all, the patient is rightfully an outpatient until an admission order is obtained. The hospital could choose to bill this as an outpatient stay, take the lower reimbursement, and not have a readmission or mortality of an inpatient, or they could use one of their extremely rare admissions and bill as an in admission without the order and get the DRG payment, but potentially be penalized. Both, in my opinion, are perfectly compliant. Now, what would you do? So I've posted this case in the handouts tab so you can print it out and go talk to your compliance and quality people and see what they think. And next week, we're going to ask you what you would do in our poll. See you next week. Thanks, Dr. Hirsch. That's going to be a wrap-up for us. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Frank Cohen, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, David Glazer, Ed Roche, and our special guest, Michael Lewis. We thank you for starting off your week with us this morning, and we look forward to you being here next Monday for another live edition of Monitor Monday. That's when Chuck Buck returns. I'm J. Paul Spencer reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.